As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to The Phil Hay Show, which is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan. Hello. From The Athletic and remotely today, it's Phil Hay. Hello. And from the square ball, alongside me, Michael Normanson. Hello. If you want to read everything that Phil has been writing about, some of which we will be chatting about today, including Phil. Uh, we have been uh, on about uh, Matthias Click this week um, after Bale's comments about him last week, saying he could play for any of the best clubs in the world. We had a good look as well at the first 10 games of the season. We're a quarter of the way in now and Leeds settled very, very well into the, the, the Premier League. We've also got um, a nice little piece on Bielsa's famous Spygate press conference coming up before the Chelsea game on Saturday as well. To read all that, get yourself subscribed to The Athletic. To get signed up, head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Explain yourself then, Mr. Hay. Why are you not here with us today? What's been going on in your world? Yeah, I must apologise for this. Um, coming remotely from York, I was in for surgery on my nose earlier this week and I'm isolating, as you have to, for about seven days. And I'm also on coding at the moment and flying slightly. So I apologise for anything said in this podcast that shouldn't have been. You're a vain man, Phil. We always knew it. <laughs> Looking better for it as well, I'm telling you. And Leeds in good shape at the minute as well. Everton was very, very good last weekend. Feels like an age ago now as we hurtled towards Stamford Bridge at the weekend. We'll come on to all that, but first of all, a reflection, if we could, on what was a superb Leeds performance. It was, and against a, a very good team who I think to see them in the flesh, so to speak, look a bit incomplete at the moment. I think they've got an awful lot going for them up front with Rodriguez and Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin as well. But porous at the back, and I think that was where all three of us felt that Leeds might have some joy at the weekend. Um, it's interesting, really, because I, I was on a, an Everton podcast last week, The Blue Room, and, and the guys who were presenting that were saying to me that they're over in Merseyside. They, they were... They were all really seeing Leeds as a bit of a benchmark for Everton. It was a, a good test, really, of where they were at, of, of how good that side actually was. And I get the feeling that quite a lot of the teams in the Premier League are looking at Leeds in the same way. I think that there is this assumption now that under Bielsa, they're, they're a very good team, they're a very dangerous team. And, and if you're going to beat Leeds, you, you have to play well. If you're going to beat them convincingly, you, you have to be pretty outstanding. But I felt equally that it was a, a good benchmark for Leeds and um, the game over at, at Goodison Park. I think Everton are the sort of team that, you know, over a period of two, three years, um, Leeds should be trying to, to match, should be trying to, to catch up with 
in the division. And I thought they were the better side over 90 minutes. I did. I thought they were more dangerous going forward. And I thought they, they caused a lot of problems for Everton at the back. And, you know, there were chances for Everton as they were bound to be because of the quality of their front three. But in the main, Calvert-Lewin was pretty quiet. In the main, Rodriguez was never able to cut loose and, and neither was Richarlison. And I felt on reflection that that Leeds deserved to win that by more than a goal. It was it was a cracking finish from Rafina in the end, and it, it felt as if it was going to take something like that because again, it was one of those one of those evenings where the chances were flowing, where they were coming off the bar, where there were good saves, where it felt as if nothing was going to go in. But I think, as somebody else said to me, it's it's a bit of a bit like the law of averages. If you create nigh on fifty chances in two games against Arsenal and Everton, you're going to win at least one of them, and and it's going to come good eventually. Um, and it really does feel like it's it's starting to click quite impressively now. The XG reflected that as well. We mentioned this on the Squareball podcast, didn't we, Michael? I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was about 1.49 for Everton. And what was it for us? Three points about, something? About three and a half yeah. in the end. So we could, we could have had more and probably should. Well, I think over the, the two games, could have scored five or six goals according to XG. And, and it did feel that dominant, certainly against Everton and for much longer parts of the game against Arsenal. It leads on top right, right the way through that. I think it's the range of creativity as well. The chances are coming from from all sorts of areas. And, and I definitely think Rafinha's brought something different to the team. I think his pace and his, his ingenuity is, is on a different level to a lot of the other wingers who are there. But it, it was quite telling that the goal came in the 80th minute. And, and I was looking back at the sort of final stages of the match after it finished on Saturday. And it reminds you a lot of the, the championship and the way that Leeds used to attack in it, the fact that they would attack right to the end, right to the, the end of, of injury time. And that mentality doesn't seem to have faded, even though they're going to somewhere in Goodison Park where with 10 minutes to go in it, nil-nil, there's the temptation to think that actually the point that's on offer is a pretty good one and perhaps you don't want to risk it, perhaps you don't want to push the boat out when you know that you might get caught in the break by Calvert-Lewin or, or by Richarlison. But at that point where... Rafinha scored. You had Alioski ahead of him, Bielsa's left back in the Everton D. You had five other players round about. And even right at the end, the chance for Costa that Pickford saved with his legs, you know, that was literally about 25 seconds from the end of of the last minute of of injury time. And Paveda had the option to take the ball into the corner. He didn't. He'd not make the defender. He played the ball across. It it set up a a great, great chance for, for Costa. But again, Look at the bodies that are around him at that point. You've got, I think, six players um, at Everton's end of the pitch, all on the attack, all trying to score a second goal. And, and I was saying in a piece that I wrote um, on Wednesday, you know, that is kind of Bielsa's version of hanging on. It's it's 1-0 away to a very good Everton side, but you're playing for a second goal. You're, you're trying to kill the game even more if, if you can. And I think that is what Premier League clubs are finding difficult with Leeds at the moment, that it does persist you know the intensity and the quality of the performance it's still there in injury time as it as it is you know in the periods of the first half when leads are, are nice and fresh and they just look very very up to speed at the moment how does rodrigo get back into this team it's a very good question i expected him to play at everton just because of who he is and, and the quality of player he is and, and the fact that you felt that in in fighting fire with fire over there and up against richarlison and rodriguez in particular a little bit of class from somebody like Rodrigo might be needed. But it has to be said that Dallas, Stuart Dallas, was very good against Arsenal in the, the sort of midfield role alongside Matthias Cleek. And I, I thought he had a very decent game over at Goodison Park again. And, and it's quite interesting, really, that you, you're coming away from a result like that thinking that Rodrigo hasn't had a look in at all in that fixture. He's actually only played 20 minutes against Arsenal as well. I think a few of us felt that he could have come on earlier against Arsenal and, and would perhaps have forced the issue on, on that particular evening. 
But again, it, it just makes you feel that there's a little bit more to come with this squad. You've got Urenti, who we, we haven't seen anything of yet because of injury. Rodrigo has, I think, had some, some very impressive games. But equally, hasn't yet had that long run, that long streak of matches where it feels like he's fully established. And I think, without wanting to tempt fate, and, and I'm, I'm sort of regularly wrong with these things, but I think it seems likely that it'll be Dallas in there again against Chelsea because there won't have been anything that Bielsa has seen in the Arsenal game or the, the win at Everton that's going to persuade him in any great degree to change things down at Stamford Bridge. Why not make Dallas your one to watch? <laughs> that's the easiest way, isn't it? Yeah, without fail. Yeah, so what was it? Rodrigo had a, what, do you have a minute? Was it at Goodison uh, after you made him your one to watch? Well, well th- this was it, wasn't it? I was thinking him against Rodriguez, that would be the, the fascinating matchup. But in the end, I mean, I think the kind of key matchup was Calvin Phillips against the world over there. I thought there were a lot of Leeds players who played extremely well. I, I felt that Cleek had another really effective game in, in the quiet way that, that he tends to play. And, and obviously, Rafinha in his more dangerous moments was a was a handful, but that might be the best performance we've seen from Calvin Phillips at, at Leeds. And, and, you know, that is up against some pretty stiff competition, but the standard of his passing was, was exceptional. And I think it was more exceptional because it was a very high tempo game. It was a bit like basketball end to end. The tempo of it never really dropped at any stage. And I think in those circumstances to come away with a pass completion rate of 95%, and, you know, more than 90% in Everton's half as well, considering some of his distribution and the passes he was trying to pick out, it it was absolutely outstanding. And I think like a lot of other people, I was chuckling at Graham Sooner saying beforehand and afterwards that there aren't enough goals in, in Phillips' game because you get to the point of thinking that for some people, nothing is ever quite enough. And, and you know, there's, there's always that kind of impossible room for improvement. And looking at Phillips on Saturday, you do think that if, you had him playing defensively like that and quarterbacking a team like that, while at the same time banging in goals at the other end of the field, you really would be talking about a player with everything whose valuation would be off the scale. Let's talk about Phillips just very quickly in the context of a prediction that Michael made last week, because you you thought that maybe Bielsa would have the beating of Ancelotti. And I, I wonder, and I'm only playing devil's advocate because I thought Calvin was absolutely amazing last weekend as well. Did they let us play? Did they give us the room to play? Is that why Calvin looked so good? Because Ancelotti's midfield stood off us. I suppose I thought when it came to midfield that we'd keep going in a way that I could see maybe they wouldn't. I thought Alan was very good in, in midfield for them, but Rodriguez on the ball did some great things. He did a nice bit of diving at some points as well, but I don't feel like he was ever involved as much as either Phillips, Dallas or Click. He just seemed, he drifted in and out to an extent in that, which I don't think... When you're playing against a midfield that does as much running as us, I don't think you can afford any passengers in there. Do you think Rodriguez was a bit of a passenger, Phil? I feel so. Yeah, I didn't think he had a particularly impressive game. The the goal that he had disallowed, the, the takedown of the ball on Leeds byline and the finish was that little touch of magic that you expect from him. But I think one of the key differences was that you were looking at a team in Leeds who were really settled in the system and really clear in what they were doing compared to a team in Everton who at the back seemed to be a, a little bit of of a mess. I think there was a surprise at the time and, and more so with hindsight that Ancelotti didn't go for a back four, didn't try to have two out and out fullbacks just to to kind of block the, the flow of Leeds traffic on, on either side. It will be, I thought, had a particularly difficult night. And it didn't seem to me like the system or the formation that Ancelotti went with was particularly suited to to dealing with the, the setup um that, that Bielsa goes goes with at Leeds. And you know, you could see the confidence in, in the way Leeds were playing. And I think it would be unfair to say that that they they stood off Phillips um, and, and gave him a ridiculous amount of space. I think if they went 
at the time again. And if they look back at it, I think they would certainly try to be tighter to him and, and would try to, to give him less room. But actually, the problem was the quality of his passing. You know, even in tight areas or in, in difficult positions where he didn't have a huge amount of time to think or, or was trying to pick out really, really difficult balls forward, he was hitting pretty much everything and it was opening everything up. It was giving them, um, you know, forcing them to turn, look over their shoulder, keeping them under pressure. And as I say, I, I have that down as probably the best performance we've we've seen from him individually. And I don't think actually against opposition of that quality, I don't think we've seen many better performances from Bielsa's leads either. Just coming back to Rafinha, it should be noted that Wren exited the Champions League this week quite quickly after the departure of Rafinha. And I note that with a raised eyebrow with regard to how their fans behaved towards Leeds fans after we signed him from them. So it's looking like a, a very canny piece of business from Leeds. I think it is. And and Rafinha choosing to come here when he had Champions League football on a plate, I think tells a story, a, a couple of stories, really. It was never likely that Rem were going to go far in the Champions League. This is new territory for them. First time they've qualified. Uh, and I think it was it was always going to be a stretch. And, and I suspect that when he was making the decision about whether to leave, and it was very much his decision to come, it was on his terms, really. He said to Ren that he wanted to go and, and that he wanted to look for, for new pastures. I think he'll have seen that Ren's qualification for the Champions League was, if not necessarily a one-off, then wasn't it wasn't automatically a guarantee of, of regular football at, at that level. And I suspect he, he will probably feel deep down that he has more scope to grow at Leeds, that Leeds perhaps have more scope to grow in the Premier League than Ren do over in, in League 1. And I agree with you. I, I did write that piece after Arsenal saying that, you know, on the basis of, of what he did during that game, £17 million looked like a very, very good value transfer fee for him. Um, and I don't think the game at Everton changed that perception at all. It, it, the recruitment in this summer window, and, and granted we haven't seen your NT yet, but that's been down to injury. It feels to me like it's been bang on the money. And the window reopens again in another few weeks. And we turn our attention to the FA Cup in January and we've had the draw there for the third round. Crawley away, January at Gatwick Airport, Phil. Looking forward to that? Yes, my my only memories of Crawley are going to a wedding there and getting absolutely leathered about 15 years ago. So I have to say it would be a new ground for me if indeed we, we managed to get in. It's been a battle for away tickets at the moment. It's not the most thrilling of draws, although it's the sort of draw that Leeds have got used to over the years. It's kind of mid-table, League Two side. It's away from home. It's it's unlikely to be hugely straightforward. And I, I would assume that Bielsa, like he tends to do at this stage of cup competitions, particularly against teams at, at this level, I, I think is likely to make a lot of changes. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a kind of steady side, Crawley, with, without being spectacular. I think it's a, a tie that, that Leeds would expect to win, but I don't think it's a tie that Bielsa is going to place any huge amount of weight on. Do you think it'll be on the telly? Well, Leeds tend to be. I mean, I have to say, going through the draw for the third round, there was Spurs away at Marine, which is the obvious pick, and, and that, that'll have to be shown. You would hope that there'd be some form of a crowd back in for that one, because it would be a pity if, if there wasn't. But that aside, and, and West Ham away at Stockport as well, it wasn't the most thrilling of draws, I didn't feel. There wasn't a huge amount jumping out. And Leeds always pull a, a very big TV audience. So if it does make it onto the schedule, I won't be surprised. And we'll have to witness Steve Evans, no doubt, on the on the panel for that one. The Steve Evans derby, yes. Harry Kuehl derby as well, let's not forget, more recently. All the favourites. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do fancy us to, to win that. Maybe this is the year we go on a cup run. We secure our European position a lot sooner, ahead of schedule. I mean, why not? We're in the Premier League now. And I actually fancy Bielsa to put out a slightly stronger team than we maybe give him credit for, if only because he's got a stronger squad at his disposal. 
Yeah, and also it, it, the schedule is nowhere near as demanding as it has been previously. It's not as if you, you know, I, I'm constantly looking at the fixture list at the moment and seeing championship games midweek, and you know, almost forgetting what it was like back in that division where every Tuesday you were travelling somewhere or you were at Ellen Road because somebody was travelling to you. It is different, and there there isn't anything like the same amount of of pressure. Although I do think he'll see it as as scope to use some of the players who he perhaps feels he, he owes a bit of game time to. You know, he's he's talking he's talked a lot in the past and spoken about you know how he people like Robbie Gotts he wanted to play more but he wasn't able to and how he felt a bit guilty about that. You know, how he he wanted to to give them time if he could, but ultimately he was is always kind of set on on picking the strongest team, but. It does seem like a, an opportunity, the FA Cup this season. I, I actually said that after the, the League Cup defeat earlier in the season, the loss to Hull. I was sort of asking the question of whether or not these are competitions that, that Leeds should be having a go at, you know, whether this these are actually tournaments that, that it'd be worthwhile making progress in. I mean, you know, it's well known that you, you go back to, to 1996 for the last appearance in a, a major domestic cup final. You go back to, to 87 for last appearance in the FA Cup semi-finals. For a, a club as big as Leeds, the cup record isn't stellar and, and it isn't particularly impressive. And and you do feel that playing in the way they play, they should be a very good knockout side. They should be very dangerous on, on every any given day. They they look capable of, of beating just about anybody in the Premier League or below. So, yeah, I'm with you, really. I, I think it, it, particularly if the league position is, is looking good and, and it's very steady at the moment, it would seem like a, a cheap way to throw it away if they didn't make any effort in it. It's very funny, you know, how quickly you forget about the championship. I keep realising midweek that there are games on that I've paid absolutely no attention to. And it does show kind of the different profile between the Premier League and, and the championship. When was it that we um, that we played Nottingham Forest away when we lost, when Luke Ayling did the interview? Um, it was February um, of this year. So it was about a month before the um, before the, the COVID shutdown began, before the season was, was mothballed. Um, February the 8th was the game at the city ground. And yeah, people remember Ailing doing the interview afterwards where he was very downbeat, which is not like him at all. He is one of the more sort of optimistic and, and upbeat members of, of the dressing room. But I think the form had been very poor up until that point. There'd been a, a long run where Leeds were struggling to put wins together. And his comments afterwards were, were really just saying, look, we're playing some nice stuff, but we, we don't have a lot of cutting edge. We're not scoring goals, but we're not looking overly impressive at the moment. And that, of course, was followed by the the sort of famous Bielsa speech and presentation on the Monday before Brentford away, which struck the right tone and, and picked everybody up. And, and the form from that point onwards was was absolutely exceptional. But but I'm with you. It's, it's funny how quickly you forget the championship and, and it's funny how quickly you lose interest in it. When I look at the table and I follow the results, you know, there's that passing intrigue about who's where and, and who might go up, who might go down, how it is that Derby have managed to get themselves into the, the complete mess that, that they're in. But actually... Deep down, you're delighted to have left it behind and to have moved on to completely new territory and what I think is a, a far more far more interesting division, certainly for us that have been in it for, for such a long period of time. And and yeah, the, that sort of fixation on a division that you got to, to know so well has, has faded very quickly. I mean, the reason I did bring up Forest specifically was for entirely petty reasons. Do you remember around that game, they said they were going to be hunting leads down? I do. And I remember there was um, a quote from one of their players as well. It may have been Joe Lolly, but but I forget now, that was saying before the restart, if, if we can put together, you know, a run of five, six, seven wins, then we can be right back in, in the running. And I was having a look back and I think it had been about seven or eight years since Forrest had put five wins together back to back and you thought the chances aren't high. But I think in fairness to them, 
the whole division was probably feeling like that with Leeds. And I think if we had been brutally honest, there were probably quite a lot of us, me included, who were, were pretty concerned that night, concerned about the way the results were going, the fact that Leeds just seemed to be a, a bit flat and a bit off it, and, and you were wondering what Bielsa was going to do to re-inject the confidence. But yes, the, the whole um, hunting Leeds down thing for Fulham, for Forrest, for others, it, it didn't quite come to pass. Yeah, well, Forrest, um, we finished 23 points ahead of them in the division after they started hunting us down. They've only accumulated 13 points since that point, so they still haven't caught our last year's total, and it's now December. Well, I saw a, a, a table done recently about how the championship would look if you um, if you took the results from the games over a certain period going back to 2019 or something like that. And even though Leeds have obviously played far fewer games because they've been out of the division since the summer, they were still up around uh, 6th, 7th, 8th place, something like that. And, and that was the, the really impressive thing in the end last season was it wasn't just promotion by a squeak it wasn't just nicked on the last day it was by 10 points and it it was even though it didn't feel like this to us because you know there was the tension of the Barnsley game there was the euphoria of the promotion weekend and also because the games were flowing so quickly you went from a point where you had four matches to play to suddenly the season was finished it all felt very intense and it all felt very on the edge but actually when you look at the table it was um it was the title won by a street Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So a quarter of the season or thereabouts under our belts now. So far, so good. What do you reckon, Michael? Are you happy with it overall as the world's arch-pessimist? <laughs> I think we can still go down, certainly. But yep. in truth, the bookmakers' odds of about 20 to 1 for us to go down seems about fair. We're probably not, are we? Which is as much as I ever hoped for. The thing that's jumping out to me is the quality of the attacking play. I dug through the stats earlier this week and pretty much every metric has Leeds as a, a top four side when it comes to the chances they're creating, the chances they're creating in in open play, the XG, you know, the, the shots on goal. It's pretty overwhelming and, and it is exactly what Bielsa wants from his team. He, he wants them to be strong at that end of the pitch. He doesn't want them to be defensively weak, but it is the, the attitude of attack being the best form of defence. And, you know, I think when they, they play as they do against Arsenal and Everton, you, you can see why it is that they're picking up points. You, you would expect them to pick up a decent tally. I think for them at the moment, they're on on average on for about 50, 52 points. And that would seem about right to me. I think that's a, a very realistic target for them. I, I think they can aim for that, if not more. And I just think all the strengths that Bielsa and his squad had in the Championship have been transferred to the Premier League. And, and a little bit of fear factor, not least, you know, go back to what I said about the Everton podcast I was on, the fact that, that they were saying on there, you know, we're, we're all a, a bit unsure about this one. We're a bit uncertain about what to expect, about what Leeds are, are going to come and do. And, and I certainly think that helps a team to be seen in that way. You know, the idea that they are a threat and, and they are dangerous. It, it's not a case of a team who are very strong in the Championship coming up and finding that they're quite blunt and, you know, a, a bit limited at this level. If, if anything, they look even stronger than they did before. I think it's nice that we can go into every game with an expectation that something might happen. Like you get the feeling with Burnley going to Man City, they're more or less rolling over before that started and they're kind of they're chalking it off as a defeat before it's before the game's kicked off. Whereas I don't get that impression with Leeds. I think we'll 
take the odd defeat at, at Palace and Leicester and places like that. But then we're not, also we can go to Anfield and we will have a go at them. But even those two defeats, I mean, I, I wouldn't deny at all that that Leicester deserved to win at Ellen Road. And, and actually, one of the things I, I always find quite fascinating with Bielsa is that he seems to be very good at doing mental calculations for XG as a game's going on, good at doing it in real time. You know, he he came out after the Liverpool game and, and said, you know, they were more dangerous than us. You know, they deserve to win the game. Likewise against Leicester, no argument with the scoreline at all and no argument with the, with the outcome, just a, a frustration over the way he'd set up the team and, and the things that had gone wrong. Um, and actually, if you look at the XG for those games, you know, Leeds were in the ballpark of conceding three or four goals in both. Whereas at Palace, he said, you know, that that to me, it was a game that Palace deserved to win. But actually, the scoreline, the 4-1 defeat was exaggerated. And again, the, the XG backs that up. But in both of those games, you know, the, there was the point against Leicester where Hernandez hit the bar and, and you felt that, that if that had gone in, Leeds would probably have taken something from the game. I think there were incidents at Palace, not least the, the Bamford disallowed goal, and um, but other moments as well that, that just went Palace's way. And I'm not suggesting that, that Leeds necessarily deserve much from that game, but I think they, they could have had something from it. And you're in a position where, you know, 10 games in, you don't really feel as if they've been played off the pitch at all. You you don't feel that there's been a game in which they couldn't have potentially nicked something and, and things just been, been slightly different. And that, for me, is the encouraging aspect. I, I, again, and I mention this all the time, but I look at some of the sides at the bottom of the division who, who do seem to be finding it very hard going. And I compare them to Leeds and I feel that already Leeds feel as if they've, they've found their footing at this level. What I do love about Bielsa is that he essentially lays it all on the table. And it's like, this is how we're going to play. And your job is to stop me. Here are... All my cards, I'm not keeping them close to my chest. And that brings us back to Spygate, which, of course, is going to get dredged up in the national media again in the run-up to this Chelsea game. It's inevitable because they're kind of... A lot of the nationals, and I think maybe some of the television coverage, it's just discovering Bielsa's leads for the first time, isn't it? So it's inevitable that we're going to have all these stories come back up. And you've written about it again as well. We have, although it's important to say we didn't want to get bogged down in this and in this by looking at the original controversy and, and what caused it. I mean, clearly that was the the genesis for the for what followed. But with my colleague Tom Warble, we we took a, a very good and, and close look at the press conference that Bielsa did, the the Spygate press conference, in which he invited a group of, of us journalists up to Thorpe Arch and, and did that sixty six minute presentation where he went through his entire strategy and, and methodology for analysing opposition teams and players, what he does, how he does it, the amount of work involved. And I, I sort of don't see this in, necessarily in the context of Spygate. There obviously is the Spygate backdrop to this because it's Lampard against Bielsa again this weekend, and albeit it's Premier League and it's Chelsea rather than, than Derby, but it's it's that coming together, it's that head-to-head, that clash of, of horns between, between the two of them. And, and I think every time that comes round, people will think back to what went on in the 18-19 the season and, and particularly around that game at Elland Road in, in January 2019. But it still strikes me as the most, I guess, extraordinary window into the way a manager thinks, the way a manager works, what his, his backroom team do. I mean, I analysis is everywhere in football and I think it was important to say that at the time and important to say it still that it's not as if what Bielsa was doing was particularly unusual. You know, clubs at, at that level of the sport are so invested in analytical tools. They spend a fortune on it. They devote so much time to it. But very few of them will let you into that world. And, and very few of them want their analysis to be anything other than extremely private and extremely secretive. And to be shown in, in kind of technicolor the way that a manager 
analyzes other teams' what he looks for, what it is he wants to know, the, the depth of the information, and also to understand the, the sort of ridiculously extreme lengths that Bales' team go to to amass this stuff was a real eye-opener. And I actually think a real privilege to, to be in because it isn't often that you get to see that. I can't think of circumstances in, in which a, another manager will ever rush to to introduce journalists to that amount of information and, and, and to let them so far into the, their inner sanctum. And, and I remember it very clearly now. And, and what we wanted to do, Tom and I, was to reimagine it as it might have been had Bielsa been looking at Lampard's Chelsea this weekend. You know, what is it that he would see? What is it that he'd be looking for? What is it that he would want to know? And, and what would be the key indicators um, from the information it, it threw up? Because as you'll remember, Derby were the heavy focus of that press conference, specifically because... Derby and Lampard have been right in the centre of the, the Spygate controversy. I mean, we just wanted to try and bring that up to date for 2020. What would the press conference be like if we were talking about Frank Lampard's Chelsea rather than Frank Lampard's Derby? And what was the conclusion? Or don't you want to give away the spoilers for that? No, I'll let people have a read of that. It, it'll run on, on Saturday morning. You can have a, a good look through. With, with essentially, in, in that press conference, Bielsa ran through you know the, the key things that he was looking for. So he wanted to know formations but he didn't just want to know formations in a basic form he wanted to know when they changed in games how often they changed what percentage of minutes did they play did Derby play 4-3-3 in and and what percentage of minutes was that with Mason Mount on the left side of midfield or on the right side of midfield it was the the minutiae of, of absolutely everything so we went back through the key aspects that he spoke about and applied that to Lampard's Chelsea and as I say the, the piece will be there um, online on, on Saturday morning for people to have a read. I think as fans Michael do you agree that what was so fascinating about Spygate is it because we cling on to every little detail about Bielsa be it his tuna buying habits in Morrison's in, in Weatherby or his walk to the training ground it's just that little glimpse into his mind and into his world it's the thing that keeps us so addicted to him. I think it was there were two things going on in that press conference one the first thing was an overriding relief that that's what he was doing because there was, I mean, I don't know about you, Phil, but there's, there was a lot of rumour online and there was a maybe a, a genuine fear that this might be it, that this might be him coming out and resigning. So to go from that to him all of a sudden going through loads of PowerPoints and opening spreadsheets and you could see a little file called to me, like Daniel James on his desktop, I quite enjoyed that. It, it summed up Bielstra in a way because the desktop was as complete shambles, there were files all over it. But then also in there was the most forensic amount of detail and spreadsheets and analysis going on so I think just to, to be able to have a little insight into it it was exactly how I imagined Bielsa's mind to be put on a PowerPoint. You're right about the, the atmosphere it was a, it, it was Wednesday afternoon and you know, Spygate had broken the, the previous Thursday Friday the game against Derby had been on the Friday night and it had dominated the media agenda without fail for about three or four days and Essentially, Bielsa was kind of losing patience with some of the narrative, which was suggesting that he was a cheat or he was he was underhand. And and I think even you know going even deeper than that, that in some way what he was doing was the reason why Leeds, who at the time were, were clear at the top of the championship, were such a good team. You know the insinuation that the underhand methods were in part to do with the, the fact that the results were were so good. So we got a phone call. You know, I I got a phone call. So there are other journalists from the media department at Leeds around about three o'clock on. The Wednesday afternoon to say, Marcel's called a press conference for, for five o'clock. You absolutely need to be there. To which the obvious question was, well, what's he planning? You know, what's going to happen? Because we we had the same thought in, in our minds, really, of, of whether or not he was getting pushed to the point where he was feeling that the criticism was too intense and whether or not the, the kind of cultural clash was going to 
force him to do something incendiary. I mean, this was very much the English sensibilities against your foreign coach who, you know, as he, he tried his best to explain, was was used to a situation in Argentina where this happened a lot, where, where clubs would watch other clubs train and nothing was really thought of it. He, he spoke about how an athletic Bilbao, he, every single one of the training sessions had been in public. So if you wanted to go and watch and if you wanted to see what was going on, there really was, was nothing stopping you. And, and more to the point, there was nothing in the EFL, EFL's huge rule book that guarded the sanctity or, or the security of a, of a training ground. So technically speaking, you haven't broken any rules. But when we said to the club, what is this about? They said, well, we don't know. I mean, quite quite honestly, he hasn't really told anybody. He's called this press conference. We don't know what the plan is. We don't know what's going to happen. But just to warn you now, don't miss it. You know, make sure you're there. So obviously we all scrambled to, to make sure that we were. And we pulled in, it was kind of, that twilight that you you get around about four o'clock on a, a January afternoon, and all of us journalists huddled in reception, and you you sort of chatting on a little bit, but that's, there's that overhanging tension about what's coming here. You know what what's going to happen. I think it's fair to say that that Victor Orta was pretty clear by that point that Bielsa wasn't going to resign or, or threatened to resign. I think he was one of the few people that had a fairly clear idea of of what might be coming. And the players had trained with Bielsa in the morning um, as usual, and and. They, I think, had a fair amount of confidence that were he planning to walk out and were he planning to go, that they might have been given the heads up beforehand and, and that you know they would be aware of that or at least have some suspicion. And there didn't seem to be any any particular anxiety amongst them at all. But none of us had any idea about the, the extent to which he was going to go to and, and the amount of information that he, he was going to provide us with. And, and we all stuffed into that tiny little room that he uses for his pre-match press conferences, us in rows of seats, his staff packed up the, the back of the room, him at the front with Salim Lamrani, as um, his former translator. And, you know, these two big screens, which like Michael says, were covered in computer files and, and did look like the standard desktop on in anybody's house, you know, files all over the, the home screen, stuff everywhere. Um, and I think as soon as you saw that and, and you, you realised that the projector was worrying and, and that, you know, this, this data was in front of you, you kind of got the feeling that, that something something pretty unusual and something pretty special was about to start. Just to go back to the way it did drag on in the press, how much of a role do you think Frank Lampard played in that? Because in terms of both the, the unintentional stuff, just because he was high profile, I'm sure if it had been against you know Alex Neal's Preston or something, people wouldn't have been as bothered about it. But then in the fact that he initially said some things about the person being caught with pliers and police called to the training ground and stuff, some of which turned out not to actually be true. And then also the fact that he kept, it seemed to be something that he kept entertaining in press conferences for quite a long time afterwards. Yeah, the, the, there was an element of that. I mean, it, it turned out that when the police had stopped the intern at, at Derby's training ground, and, and it's fair to say that the police were called, you know, it was a resident over the road from the training ground who'd seen the, the intern by the, the fence next to Derby's training ground and phoned the police, the police had turned up. It wasn't bolt cutters and it wasn't pliers, it was secateurs that he was going to use to, to cut back some bushes if if he needed to. There was quite a lot lost in, in translation, I think, and also there was the question of, how it was that Derby were aware of these things because the police on one hand were telling journalists and other people that they hadn't passed on any information, but Derby seemed to have a, a lot of the, the info to hand. I think in Lampard's defence, and I think some of what he said... Did, that's did all, that's, all, that's all we've got time for today, Phil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go. That's us. Yeah, the end. Um, <laughs> so the line's going a bit crackly, <laughs> Phil. We can't hear you. <laughs> it, it was impossible to get away from the topic of conversation. I think there were probably ways in which he could have dampened it down by saying less than he did. 
But it, the idea that he could have dodged questions or at least avoided questions completely was probably pretty unrealistic because by the, the Saturday morning at the point at which Leeds apologised on, on the website, it had gathered pace to a huge extent and you knew that it was going to be a story that was going to rumble for several weeks. I think one of the frustrations at Leeds was that they'd spoken to senior officials at Derby on the Friday night and they were very much under the impression that if they did apologise and apologise in the way they, they did, which said quite clearly Bielsa shouldn't have done this and we need to, to remind him of his, his responsibilities. I think they felt that, that that might well be the end of the matter. I think they felt they had assurances from Derby that there wouldn't be any pressure put on the EFL or the FA for for a further investigation. But Derby did subsequently complain, which which was an annoyance to um, the senior management at Leeds. And I think as well, the, the impact of the Bielsa press conference was that to those of us sitting in it, it was pretty obvious what he was trying to do. And, and that was to say, look, if I have this amount of information and, and this is all gathered legitimately, you know, this is all within the rules by by anybody's standards. If I have this, then then what difference does it really make if we go to watch a, a team train? And the only counter argument to that was the fact that Harry Wilson was missing that week. He was injured and, and in the, the shape and the training sessions that Lampard was doing on the Thursday, I think it would have been pretty apparent that, that, that Wilson wasn't going to play. So you could say that there was a potential advantage there. But Bielsa's message was really, look, I have so much information. Most of it is useless because there's too much to, to actually process. This is just a case of my paranoia and you know my anxiety and me wanting to, to cover every base, turn over every stone and make sure I've got as much information as I, I can possibly amass. I think on the outside and people who, who hadn't followed it quite so closely and, and particularly at other clubs in the championship, it was taken as a bit of a slight because they, they saw it as Bielsa saying, look at the amount of analysis we do in a way that perhaps is meant to make Leeds look superior to, to other clubs. And, and I've never believed that that was Bielsa's intention. I, I don't think that's what he was trying to do. I don't think he was in any way trying to say our analysis goes above and beyond what other clubs in this division do. It was purely a case of him saying we have so much information that a tiny bit more actually doesn't make a significant difference. And therefore... The allegations that I'm underhand or I'm cheating are, are unfounded and, and are unfair. But, you know, I spoke to an official at another club after that press conference who, who said to me quite openly, said, if it hadn't been for that press conference, I think it might have been allowed to lie and it might have died down. But because of the way that was construed by other clubs, um, there was a feeling after it that there was a bit of arrogance there, that there was, you know, it, it was over the top. And actually, you know, if there wasn't necessarily an appetite beforehand for a big EFL investigation, once that press conference finished, there, there absolutely was. And you'll remember fine well that there were a group of, I think, about 11 or 12 clubs who wrote to the EFL directly with a long list of questions and a long list of demands for a very serious inquiry into what had happened. Can I just check, was it written in this font? I think it probably was, wasn't it, Phil? Uh, well, we'll find out what Marcelo Bielsa has got to say in today's press conference in a bit. We'll break off after the end of this section uh, so Phil can attend that press conference. We'll get the immediate feedback on that in just a couple of minutes for you as the listener. Final point on Spygate. When the club reminded Bielsa of his responsibilities, what do you think that conversation went like? I don't suspect it would have been particularly long. Um, I don't suspect they'll have been particularly forthright with him. Bielsa's funny, really, but he, he said at the outset of the Spygate press conference, look, part of the reason I'm doing this is that so that if there is a long investigation, the EFL or, or the Football Association, then this is going to help. You know, this is going to give you a clear idea of what I've done. And, you know, his opening gambit was to say, yes, we spied on everybody. You know, we've spied on every single club in the division. We've watched all the training sessions. So just in case there was any ambiguity or anybody thought I was going to deny this, I'm, I'm absolutely not. And 
somebody told me that when he went down to meet the FA in person, he took the train down to, to Soho Square. And again, you know, the, the first thing he said to them was, just ask me anything and I will tell you everything. You know, you don't have to assume that I'm going to be dancing on pins here or, or that I'm going to be trying to hide anything at all. I want you to know everything. I'm going to tell you everything. You, you will have all the information and you can do whatever you like. So they may have reminded of him of his responsibilities. I suspect that once the, the controversy blew up properly, they, they probably didn't need to. I think it was pretty apparent that at that point, that scouting method was was going to have to end. But ultimately, given that he paid out of his own pocket the £200,000 fine that came from the EFL, I don't think anybody at Leeds was really in, in the mood to, to pick too much fault with him. And bear in mind as well, the season was going so well. The team were playing very, very impressively. It, it, it all gelled together beautifully between him and the squad. And I remember saying to Leeds afterwards, you know, there was no rule governing what he did at the training ground. You know, technically speaking, you could have fought that. And, and and they just said, look, on the one hand, it was a case of killing it before it became too much of a distraction, particularly for the players. On the other hand, it was a case of killing it before a £200,000 fine became something more serious, like a points deduction or, or something like that. Um, and in the end, they were they were very happy to, to put it to bed. But it has to be said that nobody at Ellen Road thought less of him because of it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. And we rejoin you for this part of the podcast post press conference. And Phil, how was Marcelo today? He was fine. Yeah, no, um, the stream to him was a bit jumpy. So we were having a little bit of, of difficulty hearing him um, and him hearing us, but typically relaxed, really, in, in the way that, that he relaxes, which is never very, you know, he's just serious, but very, very in control. And, and I would suggest pretty happy with the way things are going. I mean, he was asked for 10 games in now, and he was asked how he felt. The team had played so far and as ever he was a bit reluctant to get into that because I don't think he wants to jump the gun and I don't think he wants to to get caught out by talking the team up only to find that by Christmas um, things have, have gone wrong. But I think on reflection, really happy with how they played against Arsenal, really happy with how they played against Everton, very pleased with the way that, that both games went tactically. Uh, he felt that defensively Leeds were much better against Arsenal than they were against Everton. I think he, he thought that over at Goodison Park there were occasions where they, they could quite easily have conceded. But that's the perfectionist in him. And, and I think all in all, pretty content. And what do we have to look forward to at Stamford Bridge then? Any indications of, of team selections? Will it be the same? I suspect it will be. I mean, he talked a little bit about the sort of interchangeable role that Alioski and Dallas have got at the moment, the way in which he's covering the left side of his team and, and certainly nothing in his comments to suggest that he's going to break that up at the weekend. Um, I don't think we'll be seeing Llorente again. He is fit essentially and and over this injury that he had, the, the groin injury that he came back from international duty with a couple of months ago. But he also was saying that he'd much rather put him through some um, under-23s games first just to build his fitness up. 
I think would, would feel like he was rushing him back if he was straight into the first team squad. It was a little bit unclear on, on Shackleton and Hernandez, but I think it's likely that both of them will be missing again. That certainly seemed to be the indication with their muscular injuries. And we did touch on Adam Forster again, who obviously we haven't seen this season and, and haven't seen at all um, since September of last year, that game away at Charlton down at the Valley. But he also was saying, you know, he's kind of ups and downs with, with Forshaw, but he still isn't doing, as, as Bielsa put it, any football practice, which would be full training. And, and you know, he said previously that Forshaw is going to need several under-23s games before he's ready to come back into the first team. So I think he's still looking at a good stretch yet. And despite, you know, the, the kind of multiple occasions when it's looked as if Forshaw was basically there and just about over the fence in terms of clearing the, the last few hurdles or the, or the very last hurdle, of these injury problems that he's had, it still isn't quite happening for him and, and he still isn't going to be involved for a while yet. So that's where we are. It's essentially the, the same group of players who will be involved and I think probably pretty pretty likely that it's going to be the same 11 that starts. Is it further setbacks with Forshaw? Because I know it's become a bit of a running joke now that he's only a few weeks away from fitness because it's been that way for, for over a year now. Is there a, a concern that he just can't get fit? There definitely is. And I mean, that that was what led to surgery last year. The, the, the intention initially had been to kind of massage him through the, the initial pain of it. To begin with, nobody thought it was particularly serious. Nobody thought it was anything that was going to keep him out for more than, than a few weeks. And it was just that a case of every time he, he came to the point of trying to push it a little bit further or, or push it as far as he could, there was too much pain and, and too much for him to cope with. And after Christmas, they, they bit the bullet, they sent him to the States for surgery and, and they were hoping that he, he would get over it with that. It's very difficult to tell in, in terms of whether these are fresh setbacks or whether it just, you know, is taking longer than, than everybody expects. But suffice to say, it's well over a year now since he's played. He is going to need 23s games. He, he also has the added challenge that if and when he does come back into this team, he'll, he'll be coming back into a Premier League side in a division which is very quick, very fast in a team who play at a really fast pace. So this is not a side or a squad you can ease your way back into. It really is full tilt. And, and at the moment, it's, it's extremely difficult to predict when we're going to see him. I mean, I feel immensely sorry for him. And I, and I know this will be emotionally tough because it, you're talking, you know, best part of 14 months now since he's, he's kicked the ball in anger. And, and he's in what he would consider to be really the, the kind of prime of his career. This was a, a really big move for him and, and clearly getting promoted as well really big moment, a chance to play in the, the Premier League again. And yeah, it's it, it's a strange situation. And, and every time we speak to Bielsa, you really do get that feeling that Bielsa wouldn't like to put any time scale on, on this either, because quite honestly, I don't think he knows. You know, I don't think he knows when he's going to have Forshaw back. I don't think he knows when realistically he's, he's going to be able to rely on him. Uh, so it, yeah, um, it, he's kind of, he's kind of stuck in a corner at the moment is Forshaw and, and no indication of when he's going to get out of it. So matters at hand then, and Saturday at Stamford Bridge. We know what Leeds United are going to do. They're going to try and control possession. They're going to try and attack. What are Chelsea going to do? Well, he was asked about, I mean, there were, there were the inevitable Spygate questions which came up as, as they were always bound to. And he tried hard not to, to bite on any of them, although he did say the lesson he'd learned from that saga was really that he, he wasn't allowed to do what he'd, what he'd done by sending interns to training, um, that that kind of ran against the the views of, of a lot of people in English football. He was complimentary about Lampard, though, and he was asked specifically about the relationship between the two of them, which I think is a fair question, because obviously it did get very bitter and twisted back in, in 2019, certainly on, on Lampard's side, I feel. He thinks really that Lampard's done a strong and, and pretty credible job down at Chelsea. I think, first of all, working with, with what he had last season 
transfer embargo and, and everything else. But then, as he sees it, bringing the team on slightly this year, adding to it clearly with with a lot of expenditure and, and a lot of recruitment, particularly from from the European markets. But I mean, I, I would assume that at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea will try to play, will try to dominate as much as anybody can dominate against Leeds. I think what I'll find really interesting is whether or not having watched the Everton game last weekend, Lampard is inclined to do anything to pin Phillips down, whether to specifically target Calvin Phillips and to make sure that Leeds can't play from that area. Because I thought, I mean, this won't come as a surprise to anybody who's analysed Leeds, but it was really, really apparent in the game at Goodison that if you let Phillips have his way in that position and if you let him pick his passes and dictate play, it becomes very difficult to cope with Leeds and it becomes very difficult to pin them down or to, to hold them back. So I guess in Lampard's head, he'll want to be on the front foot, but if he's sensible and, and if he's tactically smart, then then there has to be part of him that's thinking about dealing with that particular threat in the middle of the pitch. I still can't quite figure out what they're about yet. Do you think? Do we think Lampard knows yet? No, I don't think he does. And I think there is far more to be had out of that Chelsea squad than, than he's getting at the moment. It's not to say that they've been poor or, or had a bad start. I mean, they've been extremely difficult to beat. They've, they've only lost to Liverpool. They've been strong in Europe. They're really nicely placed in the league. And I think, realistically, given the way that you know the league's shaping up, given the pressure that squads like Liverpool seem to be under physically and, and in terms of injuries, I don't really fancy Chelsea for the title, but I think they'll be relatively close. You know, they, they, If you're picking out clubs who are going to be in the mix, they're, they're one that you would gravitate towards. Um, I do think, though, that when you start to pick through the individual players in it, your, your Zayek's and your Werner's up front, Havertz and, and others, I think there's the making of a really quality side there, a really, really strong quality Premier League team. And I don't think they're, they're quite there. But if I draw the comparison between them and Arsenal, I think in terms of progression, they're a distance in front. I think if you were if you were to pick between Chelsea and Arsenal at the moment, you would be happier being a Chelsea supporter than you would be if you were, if you were following Arsenal. Where did Chelsea need to finish this season in order for it to count as a success? Because it feels a bit like they, they passed last season off as a success, even though it was kind of par for the course more or less for them I think top four goes without saying I mean that that it can't be any less than that because of the amount of money that was spent in the window and and the, the big difference that the expenditure made was that it took Lampard from the point where you know he was talking about having a, a fairly young squad or kids who come through the academy um, and the inability to to really flex the muscles in the transfer market to a point where they were outspending pretty much everybody else. You know, it was £50 million on Werner um, straight off the bat. It, it was constant right the way through the summer. And, and it did very much change the face of the team. And, and I think on that basis, you would you would expect that, that, that Stamford Bridge and the, the hierarchy there, that they would want trophies this season, trophies of, of some sort. I, I don't think they'd be hopelessly unrealistic in necessarily expecting them to win the Premier League, given the size of the gap that, that was there to Liverpool. I think it's a big ask to win the Champions League as well, but they would want them to be prominent. And I think if if Lampard is comfortably in, inside the top four with his Chelsea squad, then then he'll be fine. I think if it starts to drift and, and if they're any worse off than that, then um, he'll have a problem. But I have to say, looking at the talent that, that's in that side, I'd, I'd be pretty surprised if they don't finish top four. As for Saturday then, how do we get on with this one? Well, <laughs> Again, I mean, Bielsa will go and, and play as Bielsa does and it will be a case of can Leeds limit the mistakes in the way that they did against Arsenal and, and Everton and, and I know that Bielsa felt that defensively they were weaker against Everton but I still felt that when it came to the man marking and, and the structure of the team it was better than it had been against Palace and it was better than it had been against Leicester and it was no surprise because of that 
that they were so in the game and, and they were so dominant. I think, again, if the attacking end of the team clicks, as it has in, in the last two games, and I know there haven't been goals galore, but there have been chances, I mean, almost 50 across those two matches. If they're in that, that sort of form again and, and in, in that sort of vogue, then, then I think they will cause Chelsea a lot of problems. And, you know, I think Chelsea had a better side than Everton. I think they're, they're more balanced. I think they're, they're stronger at the back, more organised at the back, even though they, they aren't by any stretch perfect. I, I have this down as a slightly more difficult game, I think. But I, I do feel that if Leeds go there and play well, then there's something in it for them. It's nice to be going into these games, Michael, isn't it, with the opportunity, as you said earlier, actually, going into games thinking, oh, we might get something from this. And, and this one's no different. I mean, Chelsea, given the money they've spent, it's an awful lot. But we're dead good, aren't we? We are dead good. I'm a bit concerned about the amount of talent they have and they do seem to have tightened up the defence in recent weeks and if, they are, if they're willing to hold out for a chance, they do have the players to take it in a way that maybe Leicester did or something. I'm slightly concerned about the sucker punch. What, so we go for maybe a 1-0 Leeds win instead of 4-0? I mean, that would do. I'd take a 1-0. There's a lot of pace in that Chelsea team. I mean, there's no shortage of pace in, in the Everton team either, but I do feel that when you look across um, Chelsea's midfield, I think you've got a bit of a stronger and more solid and more consistent base there, which means that your players like Zayek and, and Timo Werner can can play off that and, and attack down the flanks. And obviously the flanks are where Leeds can be vulnerable when they, they push on. But I think, again, I, I don't see an awful lot in this. I, I, you know, Chelsea will feel that this is theirs to win, I think, particularly down at Stamford Bridge. But I, I, I thought it sent a bit of a message, the performance over at Everton. That is, you know, the makings of a really good Everton team there. And, and over 90 minutes, it has to be said, they, they were outplayed. When it comes to what Lampard did in the playoff semi-final at the back end of Bielsa's first season, it felt like Bielsa had him. He had the measure of Lampard for that whole season. Was, was it sort of three and a half games? And then it suddenly collapsed, you know, spectacularly, as we know. What was it that Lampard hit upon? It, it seemed to me, and see if you agree with this, that going through the middle seemed to work for him against that side. And that's how he undid us. And I want to know, do you think he maybe will try and exploit similar weaknesses at the weekend? I mean, you mentioned about their pace in wide areas, but what about through the middle? I think there's something in that, although I still maintain that that game um, at Ellen Road turned entirely on that mistake between Cooper and Casilla at the back. And and without that, I'm not at all convinced that Derby would have got anything from that leg, let alone the, the semi-final as a whole, it was interesting because I, I went on Radio Derby before the start of the second leg at, at Ellen Road and, and we had that precise discussion. You know, it, it felt as if over three games, Bielsa had had Lampard's number in a big way. You know, the 4-1 win um, on the second weekend of the season and then the comfortable win, very comfortable on the night of, of Spygate. And the first leg away at Pride Park, it was only a 1-0 victory, but it felt like Leeds had that under control right from the start. And it felt like you were looking for a goal at one end of the pitch. It never felt really like it was going to come um, at, at Casilla's end. And then you have that moment between Cooper and, and Casilla. And, and I almost felt that more damaging than that was, was Mason Mount scoring within about 40, 50 seconds of the restart after you know the start of the second half. That period where you were looking for Leeds just to settle themselves, just to to realise that they'd taken a bit of a dig in the ribs and did not want to give Derby any encouragement. And suddenly, Mount scores and, and the game changes completely. And you're right. I mean, there, there was an awful lot of play through the centre of um, of Leeds midfield um, on that night, particularly in the second half. And and essentially, I, I still feel that, that Leeds lost their nerve. I think the tension got to them. I think it was a... It was a classic scenario for Leeds United of once again everybody starting to realise that a season that was promising something was was kind of hanging by a thread. 
you had those 15 years in, in the back of your head, 15 years where they'd been out of the Premier League, where it hadn't happened, where every time it could go wrong, it, you know, it had gone wrong. And you felt it, it happening again. And the reality of the kind of tactical changes or the positional changes from Lampard on that night were that they were forced. You know, Marriott came on because of an injury, I think, to, to Dwayne Holmes. Um, and it was literally his first touch of the ball when he took advantage of that mistake and, and tapped it in. And, and it just seemed to me that on that evening, everything that needed to go for Lampard did go for Lampard. And I wonder if, in all honesty, if you sat him and Bielsa down together and watched that game again, whether either of them would really be able to believe that what happened happened. Because sometimes when I think back to that second leg, I, I still can't comprehend the way in which it fell apart. Yeah, I've still not come to terms with any of that. Thank God we, we can just forget about it now. I'd go along with it though that it did. It was a freak series of occurrences. I think the the Kiko error. I think on another day Cooper doesn't give away that penalty because I don't think he, the ref either doesn't spot it or he doesn't go down. We ended up having to play Bamford, who was particular on reflection, and now we've seen what he's like fully fit. It was clearly nothing like fit enough to be playing up front in that game. There was too much going against us, and somehow it all fell apart in the space of about twenty minutes. Yeah, the, the loss of Roof was crucial. I mean, he was, as Bamford has obviously become the number nine at Leeds, but in that season, it was Roof. You know, Roof held that position down. It was his goal away at Pride Park. He was the, the obvious pick. And, and don't forget as well, you had the Berardi red card with, with 12 minutes to go and before Marriott chipped in the winner. Although I think I remember the night in the press box and I think all of us very much felt that the game was going against Leeds even prior to Berardi's red card. Even when Dallas scored that, that cracking goal, to bring it level again, you, you, it just felt like the whole place was wobbling. You just weren't feeling that conviction. You know, the the real confidence that had been there in Leeds for so much of the season, you suddenly felt more like you felt at the Brentford game, at the Wigan game, you know, when it it all got very nervous and, and very on edge. But, I, I, you know, I think Michael's right. I think it was a, a the sort of freak night that you'll never be able to rationalise particularly. And, and, you know, a year on or a year and a half on the sort of freak, freak night that no longer matters So what we're saying then is that Frank Lampard got lucky then and he then got the Chelsea job based on luck and he's now getting lucky that he's got a massive squad that cost millions to assemble it, It's a little bit of a leap that but in terms of um, getting <laughs> fortunate on the night um, I think he I think he might well have done I'm with Michael on this one Anyway to, to Saturday <laughs> and um, what do you think is going to happen I, I fancy us for at least a point on Saturday. I'm, I'm feeling confident and buoyant at the minute. I'm enjoying being a Leeds fan. With just about any other manager, you would think to yourself, yeah, quite quite fancy a draw here. You know, I can imagine Leeds being competitive and getting themselves in a good position and, and closing it out. As I was saying right at the start of the podcast, Bielsa's version of closing games out is six, seven, eight players on the attack in, in the 95th minute. And because Leeds never play to draw anywhere, I'm sort of loath to ever predict that. I think they can win this. I really do. I'm all, I'm starting to get the feeling that the better performances or the better results are going to come against the better teams in the division. I just think the way the better teams tend to play suits Bielsa's side more. I think in a lot of ways, the, the way Everton was set up was, was tailor-made for Leeds to, to punish gaps in behind um, to, to make most of the fact that the Ancelotti would throw players forward. If Leeds go there and lose, it won't be a surprise because there's hell of a lot of talent in that Chelsea team but I, I, I feel quietly confident about this I fancy us to win with something massively contentious and, uh, oh, uh, and God, we get, I, get, I hope so I really hope so so we get to see a nice wobbling lip <laughs> <laughs> I um, I also fancy us to win this but I didn't want to commit to it earlier because I don't want to risk too much egg on my face but let's go for it let's win it shall we let's yeah why not 
repeating words that we said exactly last week and one to watch then from from the Chelsea game is it going to be the touchline coming you've been, you've been in disastrous form with this recently because you picked Pablo uh, two weeks ago and then Rodrigo we've seen nothing of either of them for the last couple of weeks remedy the situation I'm not going to go for the touchline because I can't imagine Bielsa or Lampard wanting to make a scene um, and, and wanting to revisit everything that went on which is not to say that that won't happen but I think they'll they'll both try to be be pretty respectful of each other. The, the thing that I wonder is, what is Lampard going to do with Olivier Giroud? He scored four times against Sevilla last night. And somebody was joking on on Twitter and saying, the January transfer window is starting to creak open. Giroud looks like he'll be going. And, and suddenly he's turning it on in, in the way that he seems to when the opportunity of a move might be there. Is he going to drop Giroud? You would suspect, looking at his previous lineups that he probably will. But I mean, his finishing last night was absolutely ridiculous. And I'm, I'll be amused, I think, to see whether or not he, he gets a game on Saturday or whether, having scored four times away from home in Europe, he's, uh, he's on the bench. Unused sub then. Absolutely nailed on. Final word then, quickly, if we could, just about the, the season ticket membership issue that leads. that They've found themselves in, in a little bit of a, a corner. They've painted themselves into a bit of a corner this week, rather unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I... They've announced this week that they're going to roll season tickets um, on into next season. Um, they'll also provide refunds for anybody who who wants a refund as opposed to a rollover to the, the 21-22 season. This was always going to happen. I, I wrote in my report after the Leicester game that they were well aware that they were going to have to refund or, or roll the, the, the tickets over for a future season. Um, it was just a case of timing and, and also a case of what government regulations were going to allow when it came to crowds back in the stadium. As you'll recall, everybody was hoping a couple of months ago that there would be 25% crowds back in. Um, as it is, Leeds can't even have the 4,000 or the 2,000 that are allowed in in certain tiers in England because um, West Yorkshire is still in tier three. Um, the, the, the issue this week was that there was the announcement first about what the concessions that would be made to membership holders the fact that there would likely be a ballot of tickets for them um, or, or at least a, a small allocation for them as and when crowds came back. And I think people quite rightly, who hold season tickets, quite rightly said, look, the, the cost of memberships is nothing like the cost of a season ticket. And actually what concessions are being made to season ticket holders who you know, today haven't seen a, a single Premier League game in the flesh. And I think the club realised that they'd got it back to front, that they should have addressed that first and that, that it was done the wrong way round, but essentially they've they've done what they've had to do. They've done what was always going to be done. There was no way that they could sit on, you know, season ticket money from twenty three thousand tickets and keep it, do nothing with it, um, offer nothing in return. You'll you'll remember that in the championship they were able to compensate people by providing live streams of the games. The, the broadcast rights in the Premier League just don't allow that. And and in those circumstances, what realistically can you offer in return for a payment of £500, £600 for a season ticket? Um, so it's, it, it was the way it had to go. It was what had to be done. I think people have had to be very patient with this. But you know, if I'm being fair to the club, it's been very difficult to draw a firm line under this because the you know the government guidance about COVID has been back and forward. There's been so much said about when crowds are, are going to come back, whether they'll be allowed to come back and, and in what numbers. And the intention was always to start balloting you know, for fans to return to games as and when that was allowed. But I think this, I think this probably deals with it fairly conclusively. Like I say, it probably wasn't handled in exactly the way that it, it needed to be, but it, it feels to me that all's well that ends well. And that's a good place to leave it. Michael, Phil, thank you very much. We'll catch you on next week's Phil Hay Show. In the meantime, if you want to catch up with all Phil's writings on Leeds United and all the stuff on The Athletic, head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. We'll speak to you next time. The Phil Hay Show.